0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: It's Rico Daily. I'm Adam Clark Estes. Today, we're here with Eric Dean Wilson, the author of the new book, After Cooling, on Freon, global warming, and the terrible cost of comfort. And Eric, You argue that one of the most helpful things our generation can rally around and do to fight climate change is reconsider our relationship with our air conditioners.
0: That's right. Or rather, the book looks at air conditioning as a way to reconsider our relationship with comfort and therefore with each other. And the chief way that I look at throughout the book is to focus on air conditioning.
1: So what are some of the impacts of AC that we don't see or recognize?
0: Air conditioning heats the planet, um, ironically, uh, in two ways. One way is through the refrigerant that it uses. Most air conditioners still use what are called HFCs. They're a replacement for CFCs, commonly known as freon. And so when the refrigerant leaks into the atmosphere, uh, they're super global warming gases. Um, There aren't nearly as many molecules of them uh, as say uh, methane or carbon dioxide, but the power, the capacity to heat the atmosphere is far, far greater, sometimes thousands of times greater. Um, There's another way that air conditioning is heating the planet, and that is through the energy needed to power it. As the infrastructure for cooling expands, there's more and more energy for
1: cooling that's heating the planet. So you mentioned Freon. I'd love to go back to that. Why were scientists so excited about it when it was invented? And I guess on the flip side, how did the world sort of sour on the material?
0: So Freon really made air conditioning possible in the way that we come to think of it now. There was air conditioning before Freon, and it's helpful to know a little bit about that. The air conditioning before Freon used what were called natural refrigerants. They were things like uh, methyl chloride or ammonia, and they were often poisonous or explosive, or corrosive, or sometimes all of the above. So the early history of air conditioning was really a hunt for the perfect refrigerant, something that was the right boiling point, that wasn't dangerous and toxic to humans, and that wasn't corrosive, and it was also inexpensive to produce. And a man named Thomas Midgley Jr., in the late 1920s, hit on dichlorodifluoromethane. Uh, otherwise known as a freon, from this spring, a whole family of chemicals called CFCs. And they were uh, not harmful to the individual. But what we did not know at the time was that they're so stable, um, which was one of the things that made them a miracle refrigerant, um, that they don't interact with anything in the lower atmosphere at all, which sounds fine. Except that because of that, They actually make it to the stratosphere, which is unusual for a chemical. And when they get to the stratosphere, they mess with the planet's very delicate ozone layer, which is the only thing that keeps us from the sun's deadliest radiation. So the very thing that makes life possible on Earth was suddenly being eroded. So in the 1980s, it took a lot of effort, but the international community came together Um, to sign what is called the Montreal Protocol for Substances uh, that Deplete the Ozone Layer. Last
1: year, we took the lead in developing an historic accord to cut worldwide production of chlorofluorocarbons by 50% CFCs. They contribute to the depletion of the ozone layer,
0: and they contribute to the greenhouse effect. And it worked. Uh, the ozone layer is in recovery, although it will still take until about 2070 for it to recover fully.
1: So the world did eventually stop making Freon, but in your book, you explained that it's still very much around. There are entire businesses focused on hunting down and, and finding the Freon that still exists, right? That's right. So something curious happened, which
0: is the United States government thought that we would run out of the supply of Freon by the year 2000. Um, that did not happen and why that didn't happen is still a little bit of a mystery. Some of it is surely due to smuggling. Part of the book covers a, a sort of cfc smuggling ring which at the time was the number one smuggled contraband in the country above cocaine uh, because it was very easy for a little while to smuggle in a refrigerant and then sell it um uh, for five times the amount. so a lot of the book follows, This guy, Sam, who used to work for a green energy startup, and one of the ways that they made money was to drive around the United States looking for used Freon on the secondary market, buying it from random people, and then destroying it for carbon credits through California's cap and trade system. So even though it's illegal to produce, it's perfectly legal to buy and sell on the secondary market. And one of the things that really started this book, one of the reasons why I wanted to write about it is because in talking with Sam just casually, I realized what a bizarre experience this was. He was driving all around the country to find this used refrigerant. And so I wanted to document part of that and also uh, wrap my head
1: around what was actually going on and what what his work was. And you mentioned that the federal government might have some oversight gaps that has led to freon still being around can you tell us a bit more about that yeah so federal government is really good about shutting down
0: production of things but it's not great about uh what to do with the chemicals that are already out there Um, and that's exactly what sam's story was is that there was all this freon that nobody had bothered to go out and find and destroy and i think that there's a lot of lessons in that as we look forward to a fossil fuel free world We can ban fossil fuels, but we have to keep in mind that people are going to still try to use them to smuggle them. And there has to be a federal and international plan for what to do with those fossil fuels that are already dredged up.
1: Well, inevitably, it sounds like we're pumping less freon into the air and eventually might stop doing that altogether. But our ACs are still producing other harmful greenhouse gases, One chemical just replaced another, right? So in 2016, world leaders got together in Rwanda to tighten the rules even more.
0: And one of the single most important actions that the global community can take is to amend the Montreal Protocol to include
1: an ambitious amendment that phases down the use of hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. Well, that amendment passed, and now the world is hoping to cut back on greenhouse gases by 2050. Eric, how are countries going about this? Well, the Biden administration has signaled that it's going to
0: phase out HFCs. Um, It's not exactly clear how fast that's going to happen, but just dealing with HFCs, just dealing with refrigerants, making sure that they're destroyed or phasing them down immediately and replacing them with refrigerants that do not destroy the, uh, the planet's climate could prevent as much as 0.5 degrees Celsius of warming. Um, That might not sound like a lot, but that's huge, especially considering that the latest IPCC report claims that we will almost certainly get to 1.5 degrees Celsius already. So if we're to keep it below 2 degrees Celsius, you can't actually keep the climate below 2 degrees Celsius of warming without dealing with the refrigerant problem. So even though it's not everything, it's a problem that is not talked about enough um, and it's crucial. The, the book is not anti-air conditioning, by the way, I should say that. But rather than focusing on technology or a new refrigerant or something like that, um, the only way forward that I see is if we radically reconsider our notion of what it means to be comfortable.
1: It won't solve the whole problem, but I don't think that we can solve the problem without addressing it. You recently spoke to our Vox colleague, Rebecca Lieber, about this. We have a link to that interview in our show notes. And You talked about racial disparities, wealth disparities, how they're connected to what we think of as comfort.
0: Yeah, this was one of the most surprising um, things that came up in my research, although I guess I shouldn't have been surprised about it um, because I'm a student of American history and the history of America is the history of white supremacy. And what I found was that actually from the very moment that mechanical cooling was a possibility in the United States, there was a racist tinge to that. In the late 18th century, Benjamin Franklin did a bunch of mechanical cooling experiments, and he wrote a letter to a Southern physician very excited for his uh, discovery that you could cool by blowing a liquid with a bellows uh, in a closed chamber. And in that same letter, um, he also said that cooling would not be needed for the enslaved Africans because they come from a hotter climate and they don't need cooling in the same way. Um, This was a very common uh, notion at the time that people who came from Africa had a very different sense of warming and climate. Uh, It's totally false. Fast forward decades and hundreds of years and that same sort of eugenic sense of different races experiencing heat and cold differently was fueling a denial of air conditioners to Black Americans. But there was also an economic side to it, which was that the housing boom that happened after the World War II was really only a housing boom for whites. Part of that has to do with air conditioning because that's what allowed the infrastructure of central cooling to really proliferate in the United States. It was easier to get a mortgage if you were white, and that mortgage included central AC. And then if you want to fast forward to the present even more, what happens in a heat wave, the electrical grid almost always fails or threatens to fail. What's common is that electrical companies will choose to deliberately shut off parts of a neighborhood in order to preserve the integrity of the whole. This happened in Brooklyn with Con Ed in 2019 on two of the hottest days of the year. And they shut off sections of Brooklyn, uh, East Brooklyn and Southeast Brooklyn that were predominantly working class and black and brown um, communities of color.
1: So it sounds like you're saying that air conditioning isn't just a marker of class. It, it can also be uh, a tool that keeps classes divided. What do you think that says about our society?
0: Yes, absolutely. I, you know, it's become both a cultural and a, a material divider of class. Um, I think what it says uh, is that that we need a community-controlled energy grid Um, There's lots of movements um, for this in Brooklyn. There's uh, movements for community solar. There's movements against uh, National Grid from um, Sane Energy uh, Project is doing a great thing right now against a um, North Brooklyn fracked gas pipeline. I think it really, really highlights the need to
1: get these monopoly utility companies out of our cities. So in your writing, you describe some architectural or even cultural changes that could help us rethink the way we stay cool. What are those changes and how could they come about? Some of them are remarkably low tech. Probably one of the best one is shade. Planting
0: lots of trees, more access to green space, making sure that buildings aren't in direct sunlight or parts of them are in shade. That is a huge impact. I mean, by as much as 10 degrees Fahrenheit. We know that in cities that use a lot of air conditioning and that have less green space and open asphalt, which does not absorb the heat, but kind of throws it back in our faces, you have something called the urban heat island effect. So the use of air conditioners creates the city hotter, and that is exacerbated by the lack of green space, uh, lack of shade, things like that. The other part of that is uh, building design, relying on more techniques like passive cooling. So you don't have to chuck AC out entirely, um, but you can design the building so that it doesn't ignore the given climatic conditions entirely. Those are the two really big ones. The other one, which has to do with sort of uh, cooling justice is making sure that people who don't have access to cooling, who can't afford it or can't pay the utility bill or what have you have access to it in a public space. There are lots of ways to address this that aren't just individuals buying air conditioners that actually help the community as a whole. We need to reinvest in our community comfort and
1: community safety rather than just let people struggle on their own. But in the meantime, if I am an individual who wants to do something different, I want to get rid of my AC, what are my options? What kinds of choices can people make or technologies can they turn to 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 not contribute to the AC problem?
0: You know, I... This is a frustrating answer, but I I think that in some ways, I'm less concerned about what the individual can do um, because it's really sort of systemic and and structural. Um, And whether one person decides to do AC or not, um, it's not really going to affect anything. Um, What is going to affect it is that people get on the phone and call their elected officials, senators, city council members, in order to get energy bills on the docket in order to really change this system. That's what's
1: going to do it. Once again, the name of Eric's book is After Cooling on Freon Global Warming and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Adam Clark Estes. This is Recode Daily. This episode was produced by Alan Rodriguez Espinosa and engineered by Paul Robert Mouncy. Let us know what you want to learn more about by emailing us at Recodaily at Recode.net.
0: Support for this show
1: comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio